and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. What happens? We have the worldly and the wise. The people called into this moment are not slouches. They are not slackers. They are not, honestly, if, when you talk like this, people think you're crazy. They're not even really Typically human-ish. I need you to understand something. Like these, some of these paranormal things are real. Some of these people had tapped into demonic forces. And because of that, they did have certain amounts of limited power. Well, that's crazy. We'll tell Moses that. Right? Because what happens with Moses and Pharaoh? The first two times he walks in, Moses does a miracle, and what do they do? A miracle. Right? It is not until God trumps their power, and they look and say, man, this happened because of the finger of God. We're out. Sorry, Pharaoh, we're done. Like, that is more than we got. Even to this day, all of this stuff that we think is crazy, some of it is because other people have tapped into demonic powers. We battle not against flesh and blood. There are others that have uh, knowledge. Like we could say, well, not every psychic, not every UFO, not, ever, not all of these things, not every ghost story, not every ghost. All of these things cannot be just crazy people talking. There is some power. The enemy is the prince of the power of the air. And anything he can do to deviate you and I from biblical thought, you better believe there are moments that he has the power to do so. Can he give people knowledge? Absolutely. I mean, every psychic in America in the last 50 years was not lying. They might have not been known who they were talking to or who they were communicating with, but that information wasn't necessarily wrong. So where did they get it? Well, it wasn't from your dead grandma, right? It was from the powers that have watched us operate for years. Listen, these people coming in, these aren't slackers, these aren't slouches. This is the best of the kingdom. And they have handed themselves over to certain powers, to certain uh, demons, to certain idols. And they have been uh, uh, given access, strength, and power that was beyond theirs or they wouldn't be in the king's service. So they come in. And the king makes a demand. These are worldly and wise people according to the world. The backdrop of this whole passage is the king has hit his limits. The king has hit his limits. The most powerful man in the world has now bumped the ceiling of what he can deal with. Solomon did it. David did it. The president of the United States does it. Sometimes on a bicycle, sometimes with his Twitter fingers. Right For the one before, sometimes when he's tweeting at 4.30 in the morning, like they bump into their limitations. Kofif, whatever that was. That was hysterical. Come on. They bump into their limitations. The king has bumped into his limitations. He's had a dream, and it's robbing him of peace. It's robbing him of living life. I need to know. And so he gets really crazy. <laughs> he comes in with a generous but totally insane proposition. Bring them all in. I want to know. And in order to sort out the truth, you're going to tell me not only the interpretation, but I'm going to need you to go ahead and tell me the dream. 
right? Oh, and just so we're clear, if you don't, I'm going to tear you limb from limb and kill your family. Fair enough? If you do, I'm going to make you rich beyond your wildest dreams. Boy, that is a really generous offer, isn't it? And boy, if you could manufacture some way and make that happen, you would do it. But guess what? He's holding the one card you don't know what the dream actually was. That's what he's demanding to find out. He has hit his limitations, and he's going to bring them into it with him. What happens? Verses 4 to 7. What happens? 4 and 7. Worldly people play it safe. Why should our life look different than theirs? Because they play by other rules than we do. They play it safe. King, we would love to tell you the dream. I'm going to need you to tell me what it was first, though. We're going to tell you what it means once. Nope, not going to do it. King, we would love to give you this interpretation. We would love to put you back to sleep. Twice. Nope. They're running into their limitations. The king is running to his. They are running into theirs. But the world has to play it safe. It has to look out and see the landscape of what's going on. The world has to look at what's going on. Your friends at school have to look at what's going on. They have to try to pay attention to make their life as easy as possible. They don't want to go against the grain. The people you and I work with don't want to go against the grain. They want to survey the land. They want to play it safe. Why is that? Because what they have, what they can see, what they can taste, what they can feel, that's all they have. Can you and I blame them? Can you blame them? That they want to grab and hoard and hang on to? They want to make decisions that in their mind look right, look like they might protect their tomorrow, look like they might protect their 401K, looks like they might protect their family, might protect their job. Can you and I blame them with what they have to work with that they make decisions like that? Even as young as middle school and high school, can you and I blame a kid that just goes with the flow so that they don't have to go against the grain and be pummeled, be mocked, have their days be miserable? Can we really blame that unless they have something else to grab a hold of? Which is the will and the goodness and the placement of God on their life. Can you and I blame them wanting to go the path of least resistance? Can you blame them going to college and saying whatever the professor wants them to say because their grade's going to be a little better and maybe they're going to get a little better job? Can you and I blame them for going to college and falling right in with all the group think, having no critical thinking skills of their own, just following whatever it is that they hear or see from their peers? You and I live peculiar in this world. Why? Because we don't play it safe. We live in truth. We live in righteousness. Sometimes that gets us in hot water. Sometimes it makes us look different. Sometimes it costs us the job or the promotion or the friend or, God help us, the family member. But you and I don't play it safe. The heart of the world longs for safety and ease and acceptance and belonging. But there's a problem. All the dead fish float downstream. It takes one that is alive to push back. It's a path of ordinary limitations and one-sided expectations. What do I mean by that? Well, it's just natural. It's just natural. Ordinary limitations. What are the limitations of life? Well, when you know people, life gets a little better. If they like you, life gets a little better. If you got a little more money, you get a little more stuff, and for some reason we've been told that makes us happy, so we keep trying it. It's ordinary. 
they don't have the expectation of the godly. They don't have the wisdom to know that not all this shiny stuff is good. It's not going to make me happy and it's not going to fill me up. They don't have that. They play it safe. Right? What else do worldly people do? Look at uh, verse 8. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time. Because you see, the word from, my, from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Prove your power, or I know you're lying. That's what's happening. That's terrifying. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Ooh. They have no clue what kind of prophecy they just spoke. Gods don't dwell in flesh. Guess what? There's one that took it up, and there's one that's here right now. You and I are the temple of the living God. Man, worldly and whipped. They're worldly and done. The limitations of these people has now been met too. The question is not when you and I are going to meet our limitations, or not if, but when. You're going to meet your limitations. You're going to figure out one day, you're going to roll out of bed, the phone's going to ring, somebody's going to need something, and you are going to be at the top. You're running at 99%, and that's all you got, and you're there, and you got nothing else to give. And more is going to be demanded. Christian, where do you go for the rest of it? What is the expectation that you and I have that we can get up, we can get out of bed, we can take that other step, we can love like that, we can forgive that sin against us? We can put our family back together. We can uh, protect and build this church and make it a safe place, even though the rest of the world looks like it's going crazy. Where does that come from? That comes from our extraordinary resources. The secondary kingdom that you and I actually belong to, the king that has no limitations coming in and through us and living in ways the world cannot understand. It's one of the reasons why you don't ever tell anybody God will not give them more than they can handle. You want to get the taste slapped out of your mouth, say that one at the wrong time. Parent with a sick kid, say that one. A grieving son or daughter that's lost someone, say that one at the wrong time. And if they slap you, don't come telling me because I warned you. That is not true. God in the life of the Christian gives us more than we can handle all the time. Because what he is doing is bending that knee, bending that knee, bending that heart, yielding those things to him so that in him we have access to more than we could ever dream. It's not if, it's just when. The request is more than they can handle. Look at verse 10 with me. All right, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth. What are they going to do? They're going to play the odds. Because they have no extraordinary help or hope, that's huge right now. What is anchoring us every day to get up and do this life over and over and over again is not the hope in the world that it's going to get better. What's anchoring you and I is the hope that God has a purpose and a meaning and he is going to do some amazing things and we are here to be a part of that. 
our extraordinary help and our extraordinary hope. It is not ordinary. That's why you and I should not expect the world to understand how we operate in life. The last two to three years has proven that over and over and over. They're not going to understand why you and I operate the way that we do. So worldly people, well, they're going to get whooped. They're going to be past their limitations, and they're going to play the odds. They're going to ask again, and they're going to ask again, and they're going to fudge again, and they're going to try to slide in again. Like, they're going to do those things. Why would they not? They're going to ask the king twice. They're going to ask him a third time. They're playing the odds. He's going to bend. They're going to break. They're going to give in. Friends, you need to understand if somebody is trying to tempt you to do something evil, young ones, you need to understand they will keep coming back. They will keep coming back. All they have is time. They're going to play the law of averages. They're going to try to manipulate you into doing what it is they want you to do. Young women, you need to understand very clearly, right? You need to understand they're going to keep coming going to keep asking and if that boy goes away there'll be another one later they're going to keep coming they're going to keep applying pressure they're going to play the law of averages they're going to play the odds and try to get you to give something that is not yours to give yet help or hope they must play the law of averages they hedge their bets and they hunker down they play it safe they must navigate the world as they see it and it is a wicked and vile place they're worldly and they're whipped They're at their limitations, so what are they going to do? They're going to play the odds. And finally, what's going to happen in verse 12 is they're going to pay a price. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and the command that all the wise men in Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Verse 14, then Daniel replied with prudence and uh, discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. If you scribble in your Bible, one of the words that we've used the last couple weeks is favor. How does a sovereign God uh, operate in the world that you and I live in? There are many times he shows favor to someone. Grace or favor to Noah. Grace and favor to Daniel on repeat, right? Daniel doesn't want to eat the king's meat. God shows him favor by allowing the eunuch in charge to say, yeah, we'll try that. We'll see what happens. Now he's made it all the way up into Nebuchadnezzar's throne room, and he walks in, and God shows favor. How does God work in a sovereign world? He shows favor miraculously, number one. But number two is simply this. Daniel is a man head and shoulders above everyone else, right? That's what we learned in chapter 1. So what happens in life if you and I are living head and shoulders above everyone else? You understand that's the expectation, right? You should be the best worker. I should be the best worker. We should be the most calming influence we can be whenever we're around other people. We should treat our bosses well. We should treat our children well. What happens when you and I live like that? When you need something, there is favor. Why? Because you've made life better for a lot of people. And because of that, when you have a need, what happens? Help shows up. Living a godly life has ways of of saving you and I from so many things. We don't even understand it because we never take the time to pick it apart. But if you and I live like Jesus, there will always be somebody with a hand open to whatever it is that you need. 
Why? Because that's what you've done your whole life. And so it may not be everybody at once, but it'll be one. That boss that you've worked for for 10 or 15 years and you've shown up to work and done your job and you've not caused them a headache and you've not been an issue, you've not been disrespectful, you may have had disagreements and you worked through it like you were supposed to, whatever else. Now what happens when you need something? I'm going to be late today. You're fine. I've got an issue at home. Go take care of it. Right? There's favor get poured out. And that is directly related to biblical living. Some people are going to hate you no matter what you do, and that's fine. But God has a way of working out things for those that love him and are righteous. Worldly people are going to pay a price. Listen to me. Those that don't have the hope that you and I have, you know what they're standing around? They're waiting. What are they waiting? They're waiting to be found out. They're waiting not to be enough. Like when I say these things, I want your soul to feel the weight of what it must live, what it must be like to live with this kind of weight. They've hit their limitations. Every trick they know to pull is over. And now they're just waiting. They're waiting for the next bad phone call. They're waiting for their spouse or their son or their daughter to do this. Waiting to get fired. They're waiting to run into law. They're waiting for all these things. They're waiting to be found out. They're waiting not to be enough. How about that one? They're waiting around, just waiting on not being enough. They're waiting on destruction. They're waiting on bad news. They're waiting to be left. Or they're waiting to be singled out, to be hurt and harmed. Ultimately, what they're waiting for is to be discovered and to be judged. Because you and I both know you have to burn through, you have to sear through that conscience not to understand that we are at times so wicked and so many times we've gotten away with it and something just back there in our unsaved mind and our unsaved soul just says, I deserve punishment. Do you understand that the unsaved lives with that kind of weight constantly? It's part of one of the reasons why you and I are here to give the good news. Why? Because lifting those weights... Christian, none of those things apply to you. Are you waiting to be found out? Are you worried somebody's going to discover something in you that's worse than what God already knows? Son or daughter of a good father, he knows all this stuff and yet he loves you anyway? Are you waiting to be singled out? So be it because he who is behind me is far greater than anything the world can push. Far greater than the whole, uh, whole class of kids. Far greater than the whole university. Far greater than every professor you're going to step into. Far greater than every boss. Let them single you out for the right reasons. And be like Daniel. And just rise on up. Be proven right. Proven strong. What else are you waiting for? Are you waiting to be discovered and judged? Jesus already did that. Everything the world cringes about, God has already squared away for us. That's why you and I get to live with extraordinary hope and extraordinary help. What happens next? Read the next couple verses with you this morning. We're done. Verse 14. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, right? He goes on down. And Daniel went in and requested what happens. Uh, worldly people are going to pay a price, but godly people are the plan of rescue. Verse uh, 14, we read that one. Go to 17 with me. Then Daniel went to the house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, all still in their Jewish names, and told them to seek mercy from who? The God of heaven. Seek mercy from the God of heaven. 
concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered him and said, and I've thought repeatedly we should each memorize these next couple verses. Blessed be the name of the God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. What's that mean for you? Are you ever in darkness? No. You are never in darkness. Light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might. What would it be like to pray that every morning before you walked into work or school? You have given me wisdom and might. Help me to use it. And have now made known to me what was asked. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Verse 24, therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said uh, thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. Every time mankind has been close to annihilation, either self-inflicted or God-ordained, the righteous has been the plan of salvation. God himself in the garden, the righteous one, makes the plan. Ultimately, Jesus on the cross, the righteous one, makes the plan. But there are others, there are lessers that have stepped in and intervened. Every time mankind was close to annihilation, the church, somebody within the church or somebody on behalf of God Almighty had stepped in. Noah finds favor with God. Abraham makes a covenant with God. Joseph saves the world because of his relationship with God. Righteous judges that step in in moments that the, the, the nation of Israel is in complete chaos. They step in. And then even when you come after that, all the last 2,000 years of human history, everything that makes this world remotely livable has a Christian's fingerprints all over it. Every thing. What would life be like without a hospital? You know where those come from? Christian people that weren't content with injured people dying. Because in the ancient world, you know what happened when you got hurt? Your family might take care of you, but you laid around and waited to die. How about an orphanage? Where did those come from? Your Christian parents. Because they weren't content with little Roman babies being set out to die. Right, the weaker ones or whatever else. They weren't content with those things. The widowed and the orphan, Jesus said to take care of them. And so the church took it serious. Everything you and I have right now in this world that makes it remotely livable is because your Christian parents have their fingerprints somewhere on it. This world is the enemies, and what does he do? He steals, he kills, and he destroys. And Jesus comes that we may have life and have it abundantly. Why do you go to school? Because Christian people thought learning was important. You want to know why they thought learning was important? Because they wanted you to be able to read the scriptures on your own. The whole reason for a school. To be able to read so that young ones could read the word. The Reformation happens. Why? Because Latin everyone couldn't read. And so a couple men say, you know what? I'm going to translate this into other languages. And then all of a sudden the whole world has changed. Because you and I can now read the scripture. 
as opposed to what it was like. Why is there no slavery in America? I know nobody wants to talk about this. Who do you think that influence was? Would you like to say it out loud or do I need to repeat it again? Who do you think stopped slavery? Everything that makes this world remotely livable has the fingerprints of Jesus through his church on it. Every bit of it. It's one of the reasons why you and I can love a flawed country that we live in right now. Because so much of where we are living and what we are going through right now, so much of it, we, it was set up and brought this way because of Christian thought. And so much of the chaos as to why it's getting so hard to live in is also because of Christian thought. You and I were given a constitution so that people that could govern themselves could live in freedom. What happens when people can't govern themselves anymore? Chaos. More laws, more laws, more laws, less freedom, less freedom, less freedom. Daniel chapter 2, verses 17 to 24, the righteous and the rescuing. Daniel's plan is this, petition, prayer, and people. You need to solve something in your life? Make an ask, then ask God, and bring some other people in it that love him and love you, and watch it get done. That's Daniel's plan, right? His and their well-being is attached to that of their country and culture. Jeremiah 29, 7, memorize this, young ones that have grown up in a culture that wants to tell you to hate not only your family and their beliefs, but your country. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it and for its welfare, because in its blessing, you will be blessed. Jeremiah 29, 7. For I know the plans that I have for you, right? Everybody knows that verse. Very few people know this one. You and I are to be praying for our country. We're to be working for its benefit, for its welfare. Why? Because when it is blessed, I am blessed. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. God commands the exiles to do it. Can you imagine him telling, pray for Babylon? (laughs) Pray for the Persian Empire. Because in its blessing, you will be blessed. And not only in that, but you get to be a part of God's glory. Daniel's success is for God's glory. He cannot violate command or conscience and still be a heavenly force. His allegiance leads to his ascent. What rises Daniel to the top is his allegiance to God, not his looking like Babylon. Do you understand? There are a lot of people that claim to be Christian and a lot of Christian out there that have platforms that are speaking something totally different. We need to be a little nicer, a little more like. We need to partake in these things. We need to get close to them, right? You heard that one? Listen, you and I need to be holy, set apart for righteous service, and God will use you to be a real blessing. He will use us to be salt and light. It is exactly what we are called to do. Daniel is there and useful not because he is like Babylon. He is there and useful because he refuses anything they have to offer that would violate command or conscience. Now you and I need to start really making some hard decisions to get there because we have gone down this river so far that even the things we do for entertainment are probably robbing us of power. At a bare minimum, they're robbing us of time. Time that could be used for other things. We have got to be careful. We have got to be wise and shrewd. A godly warrior rescues others, family, friends, and even parts of the culture that doesn't even want to have 
what they're offering. The culture doesn't want anything to do with Daniel's God, and yet it will be Daniel's prayer and Daniel's interpretation that saves their life. Not because he is like them, but because he is the polar opposite of them. And he just continues to ascend. We're watching a young man change the culture. We need to expect the same thing from our young ones. So I asked you this a couple weeks ago. I asked the same questions this morning as they come to play as we get ready to wrap up. Are you and I ready to study these examples and do something with that knowledge? Are you and I ready to see the need for the moment we're in? Are we ready to see the world as it is, not as we want it to be, not as it used to be, not as we wish it was? Are we ready to see it as it is? Because that's the only one we get to work with. What you and I can change is your home and this church. We can make these places of peace. But the world is the world. It is what it is, and you and I are placed in it. We need to see it as it is and work accordingly. Are we ready to resolve in our hearts that we'll not defile ourselves with the king or the culture's delicacies? Whatever they're handing you and I that violates the command of God or violates your conscience as a Christian, we need to refuse. Daniel refused it kindly. He was nice. He just, man, I would, can we do this? And God shows favor. He's not abrasive. He's not a jerk. He just does that. And why? Why is this? Because in those moments of allegiance and alliance, we'll find ourselves holding back the chaos, the judgment, and the brokenness of the world. As we stand firmly in the gap, we become what God intended us to be, salt and light. Would you stand with me this morning? You see, some of you, myself included, this heroic spirit needs to step in. And I'm going to tell you why. Some of us are going to have to take it on the chin. Some of us are going to have to lean into this chaos. And we're going to be the ones that get swung on first. And why would you and I choose to do that so our children don't have to? They shouldn't be the ones leading the way in what it looks like to actually suffer mockery or to be despised for what it looks like to love Christ. But this culture that we're going in, it keeps going one direction of chaos and corruption. And we're, we're bringing our kids up behind us and then we're expecting them to stand against it so you and I don't have to. It's selfish and it's wrong and we have got to be careful. You and I need to be leaning into these moments and at least kind of breaking that water like the bow of a boat, like the tip of a spear, diverting some of that pressure so that they don't have to feel it all. They should at least see you and I standing on truth and letting the chips fall where they may. Because if we don't do it, this church is expecting them to do it. Do you understand? If they're learning the word right now in any of these other classes, we are expecting them to take the brunt of it. That is not fair. They need to see it in us. These are the days we've been given. You come this morning and pray if you need something.